We're talking about race relations in the church, and, and what we saw last week was this. The Bible's storyline is, is really pretty simple. God's trying to undo what Satan, through the help of Adam, did on this earth. That's basically what he's trying to do. He's trying to reverse the fall. One of the things he's got to do to reverse the fall is he's got to defeat the enemy. So he did that when he came to earth as a, as a man. Another thing he's got to do is he's got to restore our individual relationships with him. So he did that on the cross. He uh, uh, made the way for a personal reconciliation with the Father. But there's another thing that the Lord did, and it's just as important because it's part of the, re the redemptive plan. Another thing the Lord did on the cross, but it's usually not talked about. And that is, in his, in his goal to restore humanity, the Lord wants to reverse Babel. The spreading abroad, one of the effects of sin is that human beings are alienated from one another. And hostility and warfare and anger and strife creeps into our fellowship. And one of the ways, one of the primary ways that that breaks down is that different people groups get isolated from one another and suspicious of one another and all sorts of problems ensue. And Babel was itself the result of sin as the people were spread abroad all over, all over the earth. And what we saw last week was this. One of the central, and yes it is central, one of the central aspects of the biblical storyline is God's desire, His passion, His heart to reunite the nations. And the way that He does that on the cross is by shedding His blood. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2 is that in doing that, He is torn down the wall of hostility between the peoples. And it is in the church that the oneness of Jesus Christ is to be manifested. It's in the church that the oneness of our humanity together, our redeemed humanity, the new person, the new humanity that Christ created in, in dying for us, it's in the church that that has got to be manifested. It is not optional. It's a mandatory thing upon us. The Lord said that it's by our oneness that the world will know the truth of the gospel that he was sent by the Father in John 17. And so we're hammering on this thing. We're going to spend a little time thinking about it and praying about it and preaching about it. This morning I want to briefly touch on something that is, is going to be, I really believe it's a central part of this whole issue on racial relations. Next week we're going to talk about some common misunderstandings about what the Bible says about mixed marriages and, and what the Bible says about the curse of Ham and some other things that have caused a lot of damage in this world. We're going to talk on that. But this morning I want to hit on a, a dimension of the racial problem in our society and the racial problem in the church that is very rarely touched on. But it's an aspect, I believe, of the scriptural revelation, which if we get it, will shed a lot of light on what's going on in America today. It's going to touch on, I believe, some of the most profound truths of the Bible. But all of this, I'm warning you ahead of time, is going to be radically foreign to the way we Westerners usually think about things. Okay, and I'm going to kind of just spit it out here this morning as we prepare for communion, and whatever is left to pick up, I'm going to pick up next week. The story that I want to use to draw out four principles that will help us understand the issues of racial relations in the church and in society is found in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Chapter 21, it's in your bulletins. It's a story that probably many of you, probably most of you have never heard of. It's a story that we don't usually talk about in our Sunday school classes, precisely because it's a story that does not fit our Western way of looking at things at all. Plus, it's just not a very nice story. 
but it's in the Bible. And it's got some very true things in it. For the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you this story. Uh, it's in the bulletin. You can check up on me if you think I'm getting it wrong. But here's how the story goes. Joshua, when Joshua was invade, invading Canaan, after the children of Israel came out of Egypt and spent 40 years in the desert, they, started, they finally got to the promised land, but they had to uh, get rid of the Canaanites, a, on the whole, a very gross, barbaric, uh, I'd even say demonic people. And the Lord, when he needed to flush them out to bring the children of Israel into Canaan. In the course of doing that, Joshua and the Israelites and the power of God and spiritual warfare were tearing down strongholds left and right, going into cities and tearing them down. There was a group of people that seemed to be exceptionally smart, and they were called the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites saw that Joshua was just ransacking all of Canaan, and so they said to themselves, we've got to do something faster or we're going to be exterminated. So they took a couple of people, uh, and they dressed them up in sackcloth and ashes and made them look like just vagabonds and bums and whatnot. And they sent them over into Joshua's camp. And they came to Joshua. And they kind of said, Joshua, you know, uh, we see that you're coming through here. And we're just, we're just poor people. We're hungry people. We're wandering people. We're lost people. You aren't going to kill us, are you? And Joshua said, no, I would never kill you. They said, do you promise you'll never kill us? Will you even take care of us? And Joshua said, I promise, as my Lord lives, you poor people, you hungry people, I feel so bad for you. As long as, the Lord li as my Lord lives, I will protect you. We will not harm you. And they made a covenant, a treaty. Now the Gibeonites were kind of being deceptive there. And in a couple of days, Joshua found that out. But he made a deal, and he would not go back on that deal. And for 13 generations, that covenant stood intact. The Israelites protected the people from, uh, from Gibeon. Now Saul came along and was made king of Israel, and Saul was a wicked man, and Saul did not care about treaties that were made in the past, covenants that were made in the past. He saw the Gibeonites as being just excess baggage. And so he set about a policy, a final solution, if you will, to exterminate the Gibeonites. And he tried to kill all of them, and he almost did. But a few survived. This brings us to where the scripture is in our bulletin. A famine occurred in Israel, and it lasted three years. And so David thought, David being a good religious leader, uh, decided that he would seek the counsel of Eleanor Roosevelt. No, he thought he'd seek the counsel of the Lord. Sorry, that was chief, I'm sorry. Okay, so he sought the Lord and said, Lord, why do we have this national disaster on our hands? And the Lord said, well, it's because Saul tried to exterminate the Gibeonites. Now who would ever put those two things together? It's like, I don't wonder. Sometimes you see there's spiritual laws of cause and effect that we just don't see. But David saw this, and so he called the Gibeonites and he said, I, you know, we, we grieve over what Saul did. How can we make amends for this? How can we reconcile this? Now, here's the law in the Old Testament, and it's the law in the New Testament, as a matter of fact. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. In fact, it's a covenant that God gave to all of humanity in Genesis chapter 9 that when any, whenever anyone's blood is shed, the person who shed that blood must shed their blood. In other words, life for life. And so David said, how can we atone for this? And the short answer was that the Gibeonites said, give us seven of Saul's descendants and they must be executed. And so they executed seven of Saul's descendants and the famine was lifted off the land. This story, though at first it doesn't appear this way, Mary Cromer, who puts together our, our bulletin, 
called me up on, on uh, yesterday, and she goes, Greg, I, you gave me the wrong passage. This passage does not sound like the passage, you know, that you're going to preach on for communion. And I said, that's exactly the passage we're going to preach on. But there are several principles here that I believe are just profound if we can grasp them and will help us understand a few things about life. Four principles really quick here. Principle number one. This passage shows very clearly that God holds covenants in very high regards. Covenants in the eyes of the Lord are almost without exception and only under the most extreme circumstances they must never be broken. The Lord holds covenants in the highest regard. Your word, a promise, an oath, God holds you to it. And covenants cannot be broken without paying extreme consequences. And you see throughout the whole Bible, the Lord preserving, protecting, and striving to hold in the highest regard covenants. Covenants made between individuals and covenants made between peoples. The marriage covenant, God holds it in the highest regard. Now note here, David didn't make the covenant with the Gibeonites. In fact, the covenant with the Gibeonites wasn't even made under true pretenses. It was made under false pretenses. But in the eyes of the Lord, your word is your word, and you stand by it. And for 13 generations, God held Israel accountable for the covenant that Joshua had made. A lot of times people say, well, man, I didn't know what I was doing when I got married. I got married under false pretenses, and some of the, sometimes that happens. And there are times when the evil done in keeping a covenant is worse than the evil done in breaking the covenant. But on the whole, that is not a reason. The false pretense isn't a reason to break the covenant. And so the Lord held Israel to this covenant. It sheds a little bit of light, if we want to think about it a little bit, on, on issues today about whether or not we should honor covenants that we made with Native Americans at Mille Lacs Lake and whatnot. I think the, the biblical's perspective uh, on the, the Bible's perspective on the issue is pretty clear. And when those covenants are not honored, even by people 13 generations removed from the covenant, consequences ensue. Something to think about. A second principle is this. It has to do with what you might call the solidarity of people groups. We are Westerners. We think in terms of individuals. We think in terms of individual units. Me, Steve, Abraham, Barry, Harry, we're all individuals. And human beings are just a collection of individuals. The Bible doesn't think that way. The Bible treats, it, it does see individuals as individuals, but it also treats as a real whole people groups, families. If we don't understand this point, there's a lot of the Bible that's going to be foreign to us. What a man did in his household had consequences for his whole family. What families did had consequences for a whole nation. What nations did had consequences for the whole earth. We are, in, in a profound sense, connected with one another. So God held all of Israel accountable for what their leader Saul had done. God treats people groups as wholes. The Bible suggests that there are, in, in the original, in Deuteronomy 32 and in other places, suggests that God assigns particular angels to guard over different nations. He treats them as, it were, as, as persons. So David cannot just say, well, look at Lord, why are we getting punished for a covenant that Joshua made? I didn't make that covenant. This is a, this is a Joshua thing, and I didn't break that covenant. That was a Saul thing. I got nothing to do with this. I'm pretty righteous, as a matter of fact. But see, God doesn't think in those terms. And we've got to get a grip on this. What happened 13 generations ago does affect me if it, if, if it pertains to my whole people group. Think about it. It's foreign to our way of thinking. This is why we just don't 
as Westerners, don't usually have a clue as to what the Bible means when it says that somehow what Adam did affects us all. That just doesn't seem fair, does it? That's not fair. I wasn't ready. <laughs> Start over again. Uh, what Adam did affects me. What I do affects my kids. Uh, what my family does affects my community. What my community does affects my nation. What my nation does affects the world. We're morally responsible agents accountable to one another. Okay, so you got the principle of, of, of a covenant. You got the principle of solidarity to the people. There's a third principle, and this one is very important. And I discovered this yesterday, and I'm telling you, it's been burning in me, and I got to do it in three minutes. And we're going to probably pick this one up a little bit next week, but here, here's the deal. Hosea 12.8 has Ephraim, a nation, boasting, saying, you can't find any sin or iniquity in me. What's the difference between sin and iniquity? You have several other passages, Psalms 52.9. Where, the Lord, where, where David says, blot out my sin and don't hold my iniquity against me. There are two different words for sin in the Bible. One is aon in the Old Testament. One is aon, which means an individual sin. It means personal guilt, personal responsibility. I did it. This hangs on me and no one else. But there's another word for sin. And I love to say this. Uh, it sounds so cool, but it's, it's the word chit. Chit. In Hebrew, you always have this these gutturals, it's a chet, and like in l'chaim, l'chaim, it's a good occasion to clear your throat. But, uh, so in Hebrew it says chit, I could say heat, but that just sounds weird. The word is chit, chit, l'chaim, chit, And this word means, it literally has to, this is the word that's usually translated iniquity, and sometimes it's virtually synonymous with aon, personal sin, but other times it means consequences for one's sin. In Numbers 18, 22, for example, and many times it's translated simply as the consequences for your sin. The Lord says, if anyone goes in the, in, into the temple of meeting, or the holy of holies, they have sinned, aon, that's, that, that's about them. And they shall pay the consequences of their sin, that's the word chit. From a scriptural perspective, because we are morally responsible agents, my sin that I do, I'm guilty of. But because I'm morally responsible, when I bless you, you're blessed. And when I curse you, you're cursed. And sins have repercussions for other people. That's iniquity. And you can have your sin taken care of. You can have your sin removed. You can have your sin forgiven. But the iniquity of that sin, the consequences, the ripple effect of that boulder dropping in the water carries on even after that individual sin is gone, even after the person who committed that individual sin is dead. And the iniquity has got to be accounted for. It's got to be taken care of. What Israel was suffering here was the iniquity of what Saul did. Because when leaders sin, the nation bears the iniquity. The Gibeonites were suffering because of the iniquity, and the other Israelites were suffering because of the iniquity. Even though they individually had not sinned in this regard, they suffered because of it. When a mother does crack, the baby's born addicted. The mother's crack addiction is her sin, aon. The baby's addiction is chit. That's the iniquity being passed on. And the Bible says that the iniquity of fathers is passed on for the third and fourth generation. And as you know, just from experience, iniquity doesn't go away all by itself. It doesn't just sort of evaporate. Usually it gets worse and worse and worse. It's got to be taken care of. Maybe a way of thinking about this is, is like this. And here's just an analogy. If I was the grandson of Adolf Hitler and you were the grandson of of, of a family that got almost all exterminated in Auschwitz. And we want to have 
intimate, loving fellowship with one another, the Christian bond of unity, there's going to be some things we need to talk about, isn't there? We have a sense. I'm not individually responsible for what Hitler did. But I still carry a burden for what my family line did to your family line. There's a grief there. If we can relate to that on an intuitive level, we'll begin to get the analogy of what the Bible means by iniquity. It gets passed on and passed on. The fourth biblical principle that's applied here is this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so Saul's family line, those, again, families are, are, are considered as solidarity units in the Old Testament. His family had to pay for what Saul did. We here today are under the cross, and so no one needs to be sacrificed for this anymore. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, that the Lord has taken on himself the iniquity of us all. Chit, the iniquity of us all. And yet, the iniquity of past sins carries on in our culture and is carried over in the church until we very intentionally, and this is the point of my message this morning, until we intentionally apply the blood of the cross to the situations today. We live in a world that is rocking and reeling because of iniquity of past sins. You look at South Africa. There are tribes trying to slaughter other tribes. The iniquity of the violence, the iniquity of the hostility, the iniquity of the hatred for something that was done centuries earlier carries on and will continue to carry on and women and children will continue to be slaughtered until atonement is made for that. And you look at Bosnia with uh, the, the Serbs and the Bosnian. Hatred done because of, I don't know when it started, centuries ago. Sins were done, cruelties were done, and the iniquity gets passed on. It begins to snowball from generation to generation. And so it is between the Palestinians and the Jews and, and in Rwanda with, uh, what is it, the Hoti tribe and the Tutus. There's a slattering one another. Just two weeks ago, a whole village, a thousand people got wiped out, mainly women and children, a refugee camp. Just slaughtered as, as, as uh, the Tutu tribe was laughing and having fun at this. Iniquity being passed on and innocent people are suffering and it will continue to suffer until atonement is made. And so it is in this culture. We are suffering from the iniquity of things that were done one and two and three centuries ago, and we just can't say, well, that's a them thing. That's a civil, pre-Civil War thing. That's not about me. It's not about me individually. It's not an I own. I didn't do slavery. I'm not personally guilty about that. And when people try to make it, see, a lot of times people confuse uh, sin and iniquity, and then they try to think that they can make, take care of this by making a person feel individually guilty and responsible for something that was done in the past. But I'm not individually responsible for what was done in the past but I do carry the burden of the iniquity of what was done in the past. By the same means, nobody can use what was done in the past to excuse their behavior today. Well, it's not my fault. This is what happened to my ancestors 200 years ago. We are individually responsible for better or for worse for our behavior today. But at the same time, it's so important that we take a, a more biblical perspective at this and realize that we are under the iniquity of things that our forefathers did. From a white perspective, let me just say this. My people, then I can't just say that was, a, that was a back then thing. My people went over to Africa. They ripped families apart, husbands from wives, wives from husbands, children from parents, boxed them in little cargo ships and brought them over here, sometimes having a 50% mortality rate. I don't know if you've ever seen the ships that they carried these slaves in. They had little rows. They'd try to pack them like sardines. Very little water, very little food, intense heat, sometimes going for months on end on a ship. 
Sometimes having a 50% mortality rate, but that's just good business because you weed out the weak ones. Sometimes, we have accounts of this, locking female slaves in the, in the, in the captain's quarters so he can, they used to call them belly warmers, so he could just have his jollies all the way over there, selling them like animals, treating them like meat, and for centuries putting them in slavery. Treating people made in the image of God like God never intended them to be treated. And that, the effects of that, the consequences of that, go on and on and on in our culture. And you just can't say, well, that's, it's just a done kind of a thing. We don't need to talk about that. Again, it doesn't mean that I'm responsible for what Christopher Columbus or anyone else did over there. The same thing could be applied to our treatment of the Native Americans, breaking covenant after covenant after covenant, and we're still doing it. Some are individually responsible for that, and there are people who are individually responsible for racism today. But the point I want to make here is this. The violence in our society, the crime in our society, the breakup of the African-American family, the, 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 the crime on black-on-black -black crime that's going on now, is part, in large part, because of the iniquity of sins that were done in the past. I do not have a solution for that out there. If you got one, run for Congress. I have a solution for the body of Christ in here. And that is for us simply to own what we need to own. Do what David did and take the blood of the cross and not pretend like it didn't happen and apply the blood of the cross to relationships here. And I don't know how the Lord may lead you uh, in other areas. There are people who, who just feel led to go to either a Native American or an African American and to say, I always want to say out loud that I, I want you to forgive my people for what they did uh, to your people up to 100 years ago. Thirteen generations is what separated David from Joshua. We've only got, what, three generations? That's not a very long time. And to say, I want to just, by, by the blood of Jesus Christ, break that genealogical curse. And that's what it is, folks. We're rocking and reeling under a genealogical curse. And it goes on and on and on. The church is the place where it's got to be broken. Amen? Let me pray here. Father, in Jesus' name, I just want to say, Lord, that I, I on the behalf of, of, of all... Uh, White brothers and sisters here, Lord, I want to just ask you, Lord God, to apply the blood of Jesus Christ on the sins that were committed against our African-American brothers and sisters. And Lord, I want to ask that you'd just wipe that clean here in this congregation, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that the slate could be wiped clean, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, that restoration would be made. Lord God, I pray, Lord God, that the curse from generation to generation would be covered by your blood. And Lord God, for the covenants that were broken with the original inhabitants of this land when we came over here, and some of the treatment that was done, and the children that were slaughtered, the women that were slaughtered, and the sometimes barbaric ways that they were treated, Lord, I, I ask, Lord, that in Jesus' name, your blood cover that. And I pray, Lord God, that this people here, right now, would begin to manifest the forgiveness and the freedom from suspicion and fear and hostility and anger and submerged wrath and the memories that are there and the buzzers that are there and the tension that is there. And it's all a result of a curse that you died to wipe out. Lord, apply the blood in this place. Apply the blood in this place. Apply it, Lord Jesus. In your name we, we, we pray and we give you the praise. Lord. Amen. <laughs>